0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Good morning. Welcome to CCF. We are going to be looking in Numbers chapter uh, 18. And uh, thanks to Kimberly, who came up with some cool new um, paintings, artwork for Numbers. Um, He remains faithful, good theme for the book of Numbers. Um, Who knows what that is? Don't say it, because it's kind of, we're going to see. And we're actually not going to say anything this week, but we'll maybe mention next week. Um, All right, so that's going to, and we're going to go out of commission here for a second. One second. There we go. We're back. That was quick. All right. So we're going to read just the first to start. We're going to read uh, Numbers 18, the first seven verses uh, to start. Uh, so the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. And with you... Bring your brothers also, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that you may that they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of testimony. They shall keep guard over you and over the whole tent, uh, but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or to the altar, lest they and you die. They shall join you and keep guard over the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent. And no outsider shall come near you. And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And behold, I have taken your brothers the Levites from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord, to do the service of the tent of meeting. And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and and that is within the veil." And you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Uh, One of the problems when we read through uh, the uh, the Leviticus and Numbers is, it it can seem to us kind of random, uh, and and also quite repetitive. And if you've been going with, with us through the book of Numbers, you'll recognize some of these words because uh, they go way back to earlier in Numbers where God gave the Levites to the priests to serve them. And so it seems a little odd that this would get repeated again. Uh, but when you really uh, understand the way the book is laid out, uh, there's, there's purpose in it. And so we'll see that in a minute. Um, and one of the issues that comes up in this passage um, is, is, again, the holiness of God. And I think, uh, for many of us, uh, well, I think really for all of us, we really don't understand fully and completely what the holiness of God is. Uh, we talk about it. We know we we know words, and we we use words to describe the holiness of God. We say things like perfect, without sin, um, set apart, transcendent. Um, but those words really fall short of comprehending the fullness of of what it means for God to be holy. Uh, they, uh, and the problem is that God's holiness, and even even those words uh, like perfect, perfect, or sinless, or transcendent, are words that are outside of our experience. Right? Who of us can ever say that we've experienced sinlessness? <laughs> right? um, it's part of our everyday world, right? both in, in us and around us. It's kind of like trying to describe the color of blue to a person who's born blind. You ever wonder what, how you would do that, right? How would you tell somebody what the color blue, or any color for that matter is, who's, who's never seen It would be difficult? And we would say things like, well, you know, it's like the sky. Uh, uh, never mind. <laughs> well, it's like water, right? Uh, they could experience water, and they can go and put their hand in water, but that's not going to be a picture of them of blue, right? Because and, and, they can't understand color. Well, that's kind of how it is for us when it comes to God's holiness. It's a category beyond anything that we experience or know. And so these words for us and these concepts are, are at best vague and obscure. Um, and, and the problem is that holiness is so much more than being morally pure or without sin. But one of the consequences or effects as we've been seeing in the book of Numbers is that while God's holiness is way more than just moral purity, what we discover is, in the book of Numbers is that holiness and sin um, can't really uh, contact each other. And when it does, it ends badly. That doesn't end badly for God. Okay? God's holiness is indestructible. And God's not worried that somehow... Uh, he's going to come in contact with sin and it's going to mess him up, right? The issue is that he can't come in contact with sin because sin is destroyed in the process, right? Sin is what's fragile and what gets broken. And so we've seen that over and over in the book of Numbers. Uh, The people rebel, they grumble, they sin against God, and the result is not that God is bothered, (laughs) he's quite fine, but uh, people are dying right and left, right? From chapter 11 on, in virtually every chapter, somebody dies. And they die, it says, under the wrath of God. They die because they've come in contact with the holiness of God. Um, And so one thing we know about God's holiness is that it cannot be corrupted or stained by sin. His holiness and sin are utterly incompatible. And, and, and if there's a contact, if, if one gets too close to the other, if there's any ever threat of mixing, what will be destroyed is sin, not God's holiness. And, and so over and over we see that happening in the book of Numbers, and it comes under this concept of God's wrath. And if we don't really understand what's going on here, it would be easy to start to think that God's like really just this angry, uh, grouchy old guy who, who doesn't really like the Israelites. And he's just waiting for a chance to pounce on them, right? Maybe some of you have that idea of God yourself. Maybe that's kind of how you deal with God, and you think God is just this mean, angry, uh, bomb, you know, powder keg that's ready to explode and destroy us if we slip up a little bit. But actually, that's not, the, that's not true. And if we go back through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, we see that God wants to be in the midst of his people, and that's what this whole Leviticus and, and Numbers is all about, is God creating this space in the midst of their camp where He would be with them in their midst, and where they could be uh, near Him at some level. But it was risky business because of His holiness cannot mix with sin. Right? And it's not that God has a choice, it's the nature of who He is. Uh, it'd be something like a, a, a high-voltage wire, Right? I don't mean just like like 220 volts that you might have in your house. I'm talking about the big ones, you know, the big ones on the huge towers that hold tens of thousands of volts of electricity. Do you know what happens if you touch one of those? It doesn't even phase the wire, but it does bad things to you, right? And it's instant death, instant death, right? And so you'll see where those high wires are. You'll always see signs and warnings, danger, high voltage, stay away, right? And, and it's not that the wire is angry if you get uh, too close and touch it. it's that you're stupid, right and you're you're trying to mix with something that you can't mix with and that's really what it is with the holiness of god he is He is utterly other than us and and there is no sin in him and the, and he cannot be corrupted by sin he he His holiness is perfection and beauty itself and and nothing can ever taint or corrupt it and so when when those who are sinful come too close. Um, you lose, right? You lose because it's the nature of who God is, and it is hard for us to wrap our minds around all this. But hopefully, as we go through the Book of Numbers, we're seeing what this means, and it's starting actually to dawn on the people of Israel. Right? They're starting to actually get it as well. And uh, the rebellion of Korah. Last week we looked at the rebellion of Korah, and Korah said to Moses, "Who are you that you think you you and Aaron get to go be close to God and we don't?" Didn't God say that we're all holy? We should have the same access to the the, the 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 tent of meeting, the the holy place of God, that you do. And Moses said, "Okay, sure, go for it. Get your little uh, your little censer, and you go in there and you offer some incense, and God will show you who's holy. And how does that end? Two hundred fifty people die instantly because they were not holy, right?" And they got too close and they came in contact or came close to coming in contact with the holiness of God and it cost them their life. And the people grumbled and complained about it and they drew close to God and they started whining and complaining that God killed them. Actually, they blamed Moses for killing them. <laughs> um, you killed them! right? And they too had a heart of rebellion and so what does God do to them? He sends a plague and before Aaron can intervene, can intercede and, and, and um, offer an offering that will... Uh, satisfy the wrath of God. We'll, we'll see, stop the wrath of God. 14,700 people die. Right? So the, the the conclusion of chapter, at the end of chapter 17, the people cry out, we're all going to die. Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? You okay, know, the good news is they are finally getting it. This is good news. They're finally getting what it means to live in the presence of a holy God is serious business. Uh, and it's dangerous if you don't handle it correctly. And, and God's been putting up signs and warnings in their midst to, to keep a safe distance, but they haven't believed it. But now, they're actually going to the other extreme. Now they're saying, um, we, need, we need to move camps. right? We need to live somewhere else where God is not in our midst. But, but that is not God's purpose and plan. He wants to live in the midst of them. And so chapters 18 and 19 are actually a response to what just happened. And as we read through it, as we look through it, we need to look at it in terms of what's happened and their cry out to God, shall we all perish? Everyone who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. How, How can we do this? How can we live with the tabernacle right in the middle of our camp? We're all doomed to die. And so God sends more instructions in chapters 18 and 19 to assure them that there is a safe way for them to live in his presence. And he basically provides two provisions. He he provides two ways that are going to protect them and make sure that nobody dies from God's wrath like this again. God's going to put a stop to it. And the way he's going to do it is by uh, the provision of two, two means. And the first is the provision of the priests and the Levites. Now, this is actually not a new provision. God had already provided the priests and the Levites, but it's a good reminder, and, and God ups the game a bit for the responsibility or the duty of the priests and Levites. And so we just read that. He says, um, uh, you and your sons, he says to Aaron, and this is one of the few times in, in, in the whole uh, Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, that God actually speaks directly to Aaron. Aaron. And that's because this is a responsibility for Aaron. And he says to him this, You and your sons in your father's house, you shall bear the iniquity connected with the sanctuary. In other words, what God is saying here is that you are now going to be responsible. And if anybody dies, it's going to be you. <laughs> okay. this, this is what leadership is, by the way, right? Leadership is taking responsibility for what's going to happen Uh, because of your decisions and your actions and even the actions of people under you, that you're going to take responsibility for it. And God says to Aaron, look, you're responsible for the sanctuary. It is your job now to make sure that people do not get too close. If people come too close and, and my holiness is at risk of being contacted by sinful people, you are responsible and you will die, not the people. This is, not great, this is not great news for Aaron, but it's good news for the rest of the people because now there, there is a real safety net. And not only that, but God continues on. He says, not only you, but you're, uh, you're to bring the whole tribe of Levi with you. And uh, only the priests could go into the, actually into the tent of meeting itself, into the holy place. Only the priests could do that. But he says, "I want you to bring your, your brothers, the whole tribe of Levi, and they're going to stand guard with you, all right? And so these guys can carry. So these are the, these are the church police, right? These are armed. These guys are armed, right? Uh, why, why, why don't preachers carry swords? That's how it should. Be. Well, this is our sword, but they got to carry real swords, right? And their job was that people came too close, they killed them, and the pro- and the reason was because either either you die or I die. So this is how it's going to be. You want to get too close to God, I am taking you out." Because right, either you die or... Because God said, if I don't do this, I die. So guess what? <laughs> Just try me, right? And so they were a buffer. They were now responsible. And, that, and he uses the word, you're responsible. You bear the iniquity. You're responsible to protect and guard the holiness of God from uh, people getting too close. And he's really, they're really not guarding the holiness of God. They're guarding and protecting the people so that God's wrath does not fall on them. It says in verse five, "You shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel." You see, God um, God doesn't enjoy uh, destroying His creation, right? Uh, and and be, it was because of the hard heartedness and sinfulness of the people that they wouldn't respect and keep um, uh, God's holiness holy that wrath had broken out on them. But God God doesn't want that, right? So he provides the priests and the Levites to be on guard duty to protect them. And the main point of all this is just another great reminder that that no one can come before God without a mediator. No one can come before God without a priest, a high priest, somebody to stand between God and sinful man. That's what's required. The holiness of God demands that we have a mediator. Um. Uh, do we really appreciate the holiness of God? Right? Again, I, I don't know that we can, and I would love to try to explain to you in a way that would, uh, you know, shake us to the core. But I, I don't have words for it because I'm I'm one of those blind people who really doesn't understand the color blue. I'm a sinner who doesn't understand the holiness of God. Um, but but God has all along been putting up warning signs that His holiness is such a thing that you cannot just blaze into his presence and come into contact with what is utterly sacred, what is utterly apart and separate from everything in this world. Right? It must be protected. It is, it is danger. It is that high-voltage wire. And now to add uh, emphasis, he's been warning them, but they didn't believe it. Uh, he's been putting up signs and instructions telling them not to get too close. But it's kind of like signs in Thailand. Did you ever notice signs in Thailand um, don't apply to a lot of people, apparently, right? No U-turn doesn't mean no U-turn for most people, just for me, apparently, because I see people all the time U-turning, right? Or stoplights don't actually mean stop. It means hurry up and go before, you know, the other traffic comes, right? Um, that's kind of how it was for the Israelites. It was like, well, it doesn't really apply to us. So now, in addition to the signs, God is, is posting guards. He's going to make sure that nobody comes near to him. Uh, and and the whole holiness of God is serious, but it is good. It would be easy to get the impression that somehow God's holiness is terrible, and it is there is something um, about it that is terrible uh, for sinners. But but the reality is that God's holiness is 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 the perfection of beauty and goodness. And that's why it must be protected. It is is the, the depth of his glorious beauty and his glorious being that we would never want to see corrupted with sin. I just saw yesterday... Um, speaking of Thailand and, and how Thai people sometimes do things the beautiful I don't forget the waterfall but one of the more beautiful waterfalls in Thailand and some local people uh, to make money built some big concrete things out in the middle of this waterfall that are really ugly and the government's going no, no we don't, we don't want that we don't want to taint the beauty of that waterfall with our man-made junk got to get take it out right and so it is with God's holiness sin would corrupt and taint it and make it No longer perfection and beauty. Um, So we must protect it. And of course, the the great truth for us is that uh, we no longer have to go through Aaron as a high priest. Uh, Now we have Jesus who is our high priest. But the reality is, we still can't go before God's holiness on our own. We still need a high priest. And Jesus is that high priest. Hebrews ten nineteen and 20 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. I love that. Okay? God's holiness doesn't mean stay away. God's holiness means approach in the proper path. Right? He calls us to draw near to Him and to His holiness, to behold the glory of His beauty. Uh, but He says we need to do it through the right high priest. He says, "Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh." And the Israelites had to go through Aaron. Now we go through Jesus. And because Jesus is so much better as a high priest, uh, we have unhindered and unaccessed to the very throne of God through Jesus. And so that's amazing. What destroyed the Israelites will not harm us because we go through Jesus. When we enter into God's presence through His blood, we have full and complete access and we can draw near. We are, the New Testament tells us, we are priests, meaning we now have access that the people of Israel did not. Are you taking advantage of that access? Are you drawing near to the holiness of God and experiencing the beauty and wonder of who He is through Christ. Um, Kind of a side application to this in in terms of New Testament. um, We do have unhindered access to Christ, uh, to God through Christ. uh, But we do also have a responsibility of guarding and protecting uh, God's people. Uh, James three one says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Right? There are, Levites. there are no high priests. I'm not a high priest. I'm not even a low priest. I'm not a priest. Other than what we all are, the priesthood of believers. But God's leaders in his church are called to be guardians like the Levites. Right? We don't replace Jesus, but we help um, keep God's church pure by teaching true and sound doctrine. And much like the Levites, preachers and teachers, James says, carry greater responsibility. Right? If we mess up, the guilt is on us, right? If we don't teach God's word faithfully and accurately, uh, that that should be a warning to every one of us who teaches his word, right? To be careful because uh, the guilt is on us if we're not protecting those in our care. Um, Now along with this, so so that's the first provision. The first provision is the priests and Levites who stand as this buffer zone to protect them. Uh, uh, then there's another long section. I'm not going to read the whole section. Uh, but it talks about the support for the priests. Uh, so let me just read the first few verses. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, Behold, I have given you charge of the contributions made to me. Now The contributions would com- comprise all the offerings that they brought, all the sacrifices that were brought to the tent of meeting, to the altar. He says, I've, I've given you charge. I've given you really a guardianship over all those offerings and all of the consecrated the, the, the things that the people of Israel bring to you. And then God says, he says, I have given them to you as a portion to your sons, as a perpetual due. So God says, look, I'm, I'm going to provide the priests and Levites for the benefit of the people, but I'm also going to provide for the priests and Levites and I'm going to take care of them. And later on he tells them that in verse 19 and 20, he says, um, all of the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. Repeating that, that statement again. It is a covenant of salt forever, be, forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have a portion among them. I am your portion, your inheritance among the people of Israel. Um, I love how this worked and we're not going to go into all the regulations and rules of how it worked but it's a great picture the people of Israel bought uh, these offerings and sacrifices and they didn't give them to the priests right? they gave them to God they were offered in worship to God and then they became the possession of God um, now of course God didn't need them but they were his and God says look I'm going to give you out of what belongs to me I'm going to give to you as priests, and I'm going to supply your needs. So he says, you will not own land in the Promised Land. You'll have no inheritance, no portion. Right? Your inheritance instead will be me, and I am going to take care of you. Right? So, so God promises to support the the priests and their families. But not only that, He also so promises to support the Levites. Now, the priests were a fairly small group. The Levites were a whole tribe, basically. One-twelfth of the whole nation of Israel, right? How's is he going to provide for them? Well, verse 21, he says, "To the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do their service in the tent of meeting." All right, so the, so the, the, the priests get the, the, the sacrificial gifts, the, the, the lambs and the bulls and the, and the goats and the grain offerings and the wine and the oil that are brought and, and offered as sacrifices on the altar. But the the Levites get the tithe, and uh, the Israelites had been instructed to give one tenth of all of their all of their harvests, and one tenth of all of their produce from the harvests. Right, so the olive oil and the wine and the grain they were to bring one tenth. Uh, and it says that that tithe was to be the best portion. Right, it wasn't to be the leftovers or um, you know the stuff that was about to rot. <laughs> Right, it says it is to be the the best, right? It is it is the best of the best, right? Um, uh, And that is to be the payment or the income for the for the Levites, so that will provide for the Levites. And then finally, he says to them, uh, and moreover, uh, in verse twenty six, you shall speak to the Levites when you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord a tithe of the tithe. And your contribution shall be counted to you as though it were gr- grain of the threshing floor and the fullness of the wine winepress. Right? So even the Levites were, were to tithe. So God would provide for them through the tithe and then they in turn were to tithe and give that to the priests. Um, quick side note on tithing. Um, uh, and there's a lot of debate. There's a lot of uh, opinions. Uh, do we tithe? right uh, we're not Old Testament so much of the Old Testament we, we no longer follow we don't for example offer uh, animals on on the altar except for once a year at our pig roast um, aside from that we, we don't offer sheeps and lambs um, so you know you can bring me barbecue because I do like it but that's not how we we, we give anymore right uh, what does it look what does this look like in the New Testament Uh well, interestingly, uh, Paul, based on what happens here in numbers, Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians 9:13 and 14, that we are to support those involved in ministry. Uh, he says in, in 1 Corinthians 9:13, "Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Right? So he's referring back to numbers chapter 18. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So that means those who are involved in full-time service, teaching and preaching the gospel, proclaiming Christ, leading the church, um, should be uh, and have a right to to being supported through the gifts of those they're ministering to. Uh, 1 Timothy, Paul also says in 1 Timothy, clears it up even more. 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, double honor there doesn't mean we clap twice as loud. Because <laughs> you don't ever clap for me anyway. Uh, and so, and I don't want you to. <laughs> please don't, yeah, please don't. Uh, That would just be really weird, right? Double honor is not talking about like cheering you on, right? It's talking about money, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The laborer deserves his wages. Right? So one New Testament principle that we can glean from this is that it is right and good for the church to support people in full-time ministry, both leaders in a church, but also people taking the gospel as missionaries to other places. Right? So in that sense, we all, probably a lot of us, are in the same boat. We're, we're supported by the tithes of other people. We're dependent on other people to give faithfully. Um, uh, so, so how does this work? Um, uh, do we give 10% or, or who do we give it to or how does it work? Well, um, the New Testament is not as specific as the Old and there is no place in the New Testament where it says specifically you're to give 10%. Um, but I do, I do think a lot of people would say that's a good starting point. Um, what we do see in the New Testament is people actually giving a lot more than 10%. Um, Barnabas sold all of his lands and, and belongings and gave it to the um, gave it to the elders. Um, uh, so, but 10% might be a, a good a good number to start uh, as you prayerfully think through how you give. Um, secondly, the tithe was giving of the very best. Uh, verses 29 and 30 say, "Out of all the gifts you uh, gifts." Out of all the gifts to you, you shall present every contribution due to the Lord. From each, its best part to be dedicated. Literally, it's fat. Right? It's fat. It's it's the be- for some reason in the Old Testament, fat was good. How many of you like to eat fat? I actually like to eat fat. Right? It's good. Uh, some people it kind of grosses them out, but apparently, the Old Testament like that was the symbol of the best of like abundance. Like, if you have a skinny cow with no fat, that's, that's not good, right? What's good is a fat cow with lots of fat. It's a sign of abundance, right? And so the fat pictured the, the very best in quality, but also in, in abundance, right? And, and, and I think our giving, our tithing should be a sense of, you know, we're not bringing animals. We're not bringing grain and oil and wine anymore. Uh, we're mostly bringing money. It doesn't mean you go through and find your best Christmas 1,000 bot bills, Right? or even better, your best Christmas $100, you know, U.S. dollar bills. I know it what it mean. But it means you give with a heart of generosity, of abundance, of giving to God the first and the best of what you have, and you do it joyfully because God has blessed you. Um, but it's also important to note that uh, our tithe, uh, as in the Old Testament, the tithe went to support the priests and the Levites. Uh, they were also to support the needy and the poor. But that was never taken out of the tithe. Right? That was a separate gift and offering. Um, and I know people who kind of feel like, well, I give to the poor, I give to the needy, I support, you know, a child with compassion, and so I'm tithing. But I think a biblical principle would be that part of the tithe, at least some of what you give, should be in support of those who serve you. Those who are pastors and ministers and teachers and missionaries in the church, Hebrews 13:17 says, "Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you." Uh, we we kind of lose this in the modern democratic world, but church leaders, elders, right, are called by God to Keep watch over your soul. Uh, I don't know that we always do that very well. I'm not always sure how to do that. But we, we do have a role like the Levites of guarding and protecting you. And it is right for the members of a church to support their local leaders and also to support those who are taking the gospel around the world. Now, here's, here's, here's the catcher in all this, okay? And I know a lot of us raise support. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but a lot of us raise support. A lot of us are like the Levites, right? We live off the tithe of godly, faithful people, right? Verse 32, there's a warning to us. He says, and you, he's speaking to the Levites, and he's telling them to tithe their tithe. Verse 32 says, and you shall bear no sin by reason of it. By reason of what? By reason of the tithe. Uh, When you have contributed the best of it to the priest, when you've given a tithe of it, But you shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel lest you die. What is he saying there? What he's saying is this. When people bring their gifts to the Lord, anything ever given to the Lord becomes holy. It is a sacred gift to God. It is holy. And so when you give a tithe to God, that money becomes holy. It it belongs to God. And And he said, You would be guilty if you were to just go use this money without God's permission. For secular things, you would be guilty of violating what is holy by using what is holy for something common. But he says, you're off the hook. He says, you will be cleared of that as long as you do what? As long as you give your 10%. As long as you Levites tithe the tithe, then you can use the other 90% for common purposes. But if you don't, verse 32 you should, If you profane the holy things of the people, you will die. Right? Boy, I don't, if God would apply this today, right? If people who live off the tithe, that holy contribution to God, uh, if, if, if they didn't, tithe, what he's saying, if you don't tithe that, tithe, what happens? You die. Boom. Right. Praise God we live under grace, right? But, but there's a principle there, And I'm not saying, again, the New Testament's not clear on percentages and and all that, and I'll let you pray about how you apply that. But it's a warning, right? That just because you live off the tithe doesn't mean you don't have to, right? Scripture's clear. This is part of our worship to God. Um, So that's God's provision. God provides the priests and he he provides the support and and, and take care of them. Second thing is is the provision of a red heifer, Verse chapter 19, and we're not going to read the whole thing as well because it's a rather confusing um, description. But but here's the gist of it. Aaron was to take was to commission Eleazar his son, who's also a priest, to take a red heifer. Now it could have been a cow; it didn't have to be technically a heifer, but it was probably a younger cow. But it had to be the color red. And They were to take it out uh, away from the camp, and they were to kill it. Uh, so it wasn 't a sacrifice like it was offered at the altar, but they were to, to kill the animal, and they were to take some of its blood and, and with their fingers sprinkle it towards the temple. But then they were to burn the whole thing and what 's really unique about this is they were burning uh, an animal was not necessarily unique, uh, the skin and the hide and, the, and the, uh, the intestines and everything, but also they were to burn the blood. Now that never happened in the, at the altar. They always collected the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. It was never burned with the animal. And this is the only sacrifice where that's true. And then after they burned it all, they were to collect the ashes. Oh, and I forgot. They were supposed to sprinkle in uh, some scarlet thread, some cedar wood, and some hyssop. Now, this all sounds kind of weird to us, but it all has symbolic meaning. And the point about all is this. This was going to become a uh, a potion, if you will, they were to gather the ashes and store it in a jar. And uh, when somebody became unclean through contact with a, a dead body, they were to use this ashes mixed with water to to make themselves clean. Right, and and uh, there were two ways that they could they could violate the holiness of God. One was to come as sinful people into God's presence not through the mediator of a sacrifice and a priest. The other way, though, is to just be unclean. To be unclean and be in God's presence could be fatal. Right? So if they were unclean and already God has kicked out the unclean out of the camp, the crippled and those with uh, leprosy and those with other uh, bodily uncleanliness, uncleanliness, they were to live outside the camp, right? Uh, but what about death? Um, so, so why a red cow and why crimson yarn and why cedar wood? Well, all of those things are what color? Red, right? Red. What's the color of blood? Red, right? These were all pictures of, if you will, for lack of a better description, dehydrated blood. Right? Like they lived in the day before dehydration, uh, where we have where we can do that now. But essentially, what they were doing is they were capturing in a permanent or in a way that could be preserved. This this picture, this image of blood. And always it was blood that brought uh, redemption. It was blood that brought cleansing. And this is a way they could capture, if you will, the essence of blood and its symbolic meaning in the ash. And when they came in contact with a dead person, they could be cleansed. Uh, that was what they were to do. But why death? Uh, what, what was such a big deal? And wh- what was interesting is, uh, if somebody came in contact with uh, a, a person who had died, a dead body, or even a bone, like even if you're out in the field and you accidentally step on a grave that you didn't know was there, you became unclean through contact with death. And you had to be cleansed before you could be back in the camp in the presence of God. And so serious was the stain of death that it actually took two rounds. Right? They, had to, they had to be unclean for seven days, and on the third day and on the seventh day, they would be sprinkled with this This water, this water of impurity. Um, Why is death such a big deal? Well, death is the ultimate consequence of sin. Uh, In in the Garden of Eden, Adam told God, the minute you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when you sin, you die. You will die. Uh, The New Testament tells us the wages of sin is death. Death is the great final and full consequence of of sin. Its its absolute impact, and effect on humanity. In fact, uh, scripture tells us that we are actually walking death. Right? We we are dead uh, apart from Christ. And in the Old Testament, this was this was pictured most when a person died. Right? When they died, um, if you were in the tent with them, you were contaminated by the effect of death. If you're out in the field and you touch somebody who died, if you were helping a soldier, fellow uh, fellow soldier in a battle and they died in your arms or you carry them to bury them, you are marked with the impact of sin. Um, and so they had to be made clean. Right? They had to be scrubbed from the effects of death. And what's interesting is the water itself was actually unclean. Right. So in this account, the people who killed the red heifer, the people who gathered the ashes of the red heifer, the people who carried the ashes of the red heifer, all of them become unclean in the process. The ashes themselves were unclean. Uh, and this was the only ritual that didn't require a priest. So somebody in your family is unclean because of death, Uh, and they need to be cleaned, you could go to the jar and you could take out some of the ash, but the second you touch it, you what? You become unclean. Not as unclean as a person who's who's touched a dead body, but you are unclean for the day. You put it in the water, you take it to them, and you sprinkle them. And the the idea here is that uh, the only way to deal with death is through death. It's an amazing picture, right? The only way that the uh, Effects of death can be cleansed is through one becoming like that, one who shares and who in sense absorbs the the, the impurity into themselves. Um, what a great picture of what Jesus did for us, right? Jesus dealt with death not through his life, but ultimately through his death. Hebrews nine eleven to fourteen puts it this way, uh, speaking of this very this very red heifer ceremony and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. See, the New Testament is very clear that we we are dead. Uh, Romans, uh, Ephesians two one says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Right? Before Christ, you were dead inwardly in your soul and heart. We were dead. But the work of Christ is such that it has removed the full impact of death upon our life. Right? Uh, inwardly, now the only thing that the only thing that still carries around death is this body but our heart and our soul are uh, made alive with Christ. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Jesus died and he was a sacrifice for sin. His blood was shed to cleanse us. But also in his death, He absorbed the full effects and consequences of sin by dying himself. Eternal God, holy God, took on human flesh and died for us. And in a passage like that, like this, where we're talking both about God's holiness and and the 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 stain of death, uh, it's mind-boggling what Jesus did, right? He was holy God. And, and we know from what we see in Leviticus that the holy and the sinful cannot touch. Right? It, it destroys what it comes... The holiness of God destroys what it comes in contact with. Right? And yet Jesus took upon human flesh and he went to the cross and holy Jesus bore upon himself what? Our sin and our death. And, and what was the effect on him? It destroyed him. It killed him. Not his heart, not his, not his being, not his infinite being, but it destroyed him in the flesh. And he absorbed the full effect of death. Right? He didn't just pretend he was dead. He didn't just go to sleep on the cross. He died fully, taking the full impact of the consequences of sin for us, Right? to absorb its penalty in our life. Um, we this body will die, well, unless Jesus comes back. How many want Jesus to come back? And we don't have to die, right? And the reason we don't have to die is because Jesus has taken death. Right? Now we may we may we may grow old enough that our body wears out and our body, as Paul says, goes to sleep. But but really, we do not die. Right? We have been made alive with Christ, and such is the fullness of what He did on the cross that we are. Currently, uh, living eternally because of what Jesus has done for us. Um, And so that is why, unlike our our, our brothers uh, in Israel, uh, we have access to the holy God. Because God, uh, Jesus, first of all, is our access through his own pure and holy life. He is our high priest and we come into God's presence through him. But also because he's so cleansed us of every effect of sin that even death itself has been uh, removed. Right? The terrible stain of death has been removed. And we stand before God cleansed, right? holy, pure. Um, and so we, we can draw near to the presence of God. Uh, and, and, and God wants that for us. right? And, and we never have to fear uh, falling under the wrath of God because of sin. Now what happens if you sin? What happens if tomorrow you go out and you just do the dumbest thing, right? Ever ever done that? Do it all the time, right? Do dumb things. We fall and we fail. Um, is it over for us? Praise God it's not, right? Uh, the blood of Jesus is sufficient. And First John tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins and cleanse us. Right? Jesus absorbs all the stain, all the dirt, all the filth. Right? Um, takes it on himself. Um, and, and, and what we do in response to that is we, we give our gifts. right? We give our offerings in gratitude. But beyond that, we are called to give our life. Right? Um, if we only give our money and we don't give our heart and life, we are not really giving God what he is is, is worthy of as the one who has saved us. Uh, let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth dot org